I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go up unto the house of the Lord. The opening verse of the 122nd Psalm. As I stand before the altars this morning, so thankful I'm sure we each are. As we give thought to those on our sick list who are struggling, and as we pray for them, how thankful we should be for ourselves, and that things are as well with you and with me as they are, that have allowed us to assemble on this second Sunday in December 2013. It is true as we come to this particular lesson this morning, we do come to a lesson that closes a series of lessons. We begin a series of lessons on the closing Sunday in October. That's been seven Sundays ago at this point. But as we began that series, it was a series involving the words spoken by Jesus while He was on the cross. A series of lessons that have touched upon any number of profound and eternal truths Today, as we come to this particular lesson, the closing one of the series, I would again remind each of us what a profound event that was. 1,983 years ago, our Savior was nailed to a cross. In the spring of that year, as He was nailed to that cross, paying the price for your sins and for mine, it literally changed the course of the affairs of this planet. And not only that, it changed the course of the affairs of all eternity. Because now the veil was rent, entrance into heaven was a real possibility now. And you and I today still stand as the proclamation of the truth of that moment. In this series, we began in Luke 23, verse number 34, in which Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We, in fact, emphasized the nature and the notion of forgiveness and saw how significant that was. The following lesson, lesson 2 from Luke 23, 43, where Jesus to the thief said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And immediately the curtain of eternal life allowed your discussion in mind relative to the existence of paradise. And that very day the thief was able to be there. Lesson 3, Woman, behold thy son. And then to John, behold thy mother. The Lord having the disposition of heart to give the care of his mother to in fact John 1 who would be entrusted with the thought of that effort for the remainder of her life. Lesson number 4. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in the darkness of that moment we notice that Jesus forsaken by the Heavenly Father for perhaps just a moment. But what a significant event it was to realize that again for your sins and mine the Lord was willing to endure such forsakenness and separation. Lesson number six, or rather lesson five and six, as we continued on there. Appreciation, as you see on that slide, we looked at these words where the Lord thirsted. As He did so, just two words, I thirst. And what a reflection on the nature of His physical suffering and the excruciation that went with it. Lesson six. On that one, we looked at that particular word from last Sunday and how significant it was. It is finished. Three little words, it is finished. That plan of salvation, the plan for human redemption was now virtually complete. All things that were necessary to be done, sacrifice for human family, now virtually completed. You and I noticed the, the joy of the cross was really a part of the way that lesson ended. That brings us to the seventh and final statement from Jesus on the cross. We close the series today by revisiting the text that Jeff read from Luke 23 verse 46. It was on that occasion that Jesus said, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, He said, Father, into Thy hands I commend My spirit. 
And having said this, he gave up the ghost. As we give thought to what that means and perhaps to some, to some significance as it relates to it, as we have done in the past, it certainly seems so appropriate to observe again these pictures. I hope that by looking at them, we can again implant a permanent visualization in our mind that the man speaking these was not in some fine suit on a stage. He was on a cross. He was bearing on his shoulders the load of all sins ever committed. And furthermore, he stood then as that final piece to a puzzle to be put in place relative to allowing you and me to be saved. A man who not many hours before had been beaten in such a merciless fashion, who had been scourged in the language of John 19 verse 1. The very man who again, not many hours before, had been nailed, affixed to a cross, done so again not for crimes he had committed, but for crimes that you and I had committed, crimes against God, transgressions and violations of His will. And again, a man who, in addition to that, was in a predicament, a condition, perhaps not unlike that one. At this point, as Jesus was then hanging on that cross, it brings us to some thoughts about this text that Jeff just read for us. Six hours the Lord had been on that cross now. At 9 a.m., the inspired writer tells us that he was nailed to it, and now it's 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Six hours have elapsed. And during the course of that time, the first three hours were in light, but then darkness has fallen over the land, and since that time, it has been dark. One final significance, of course, to the nature of the darkness of what man was living in and sin, and to the darkness of those events crucifying such a perfect, sinless one. That darkness brings us to appreciate the Lord in our previous lesson had said it is finished. The thought then of human redemption now complete. No wonder the joy that could be expressed relative to that time. Jesus, it seems, knew well that His death was now an imminent thing. It was now about to take place. But one final statement He made, "...into thy hands I commend my spirit." The notion and the characteristic of that statement helps us see, doesn't it, that death was now virtually such that the door was open. The Lord knew that His life was ebbing from Him. He knew in the flesh that that life was passing so very innocently. And of course, in just a matter of moments, He would be dead. The characteristic of that death perhaps leads us to again to note the final word that Jesus chose to speak. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The previous words so often had been words of strength and words of vitality, words of concern for others. We now notice that quite frankly it was a word of trust. You and I have so often recognized the powerful picture of a loving God with sweet open hands ready to assist and to hold in safety those that put their trust in Him. We seemingly close these thoughts with another picture, not unlike that same idea. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. That word commend, as you can see from the Greek text, it's a reference to a term used, quite frankly, for giving something to someone to keep it in trust, to keep it for safekeeping. Other words that sometimes are used relative to it are commit, deposit, entrust. 
And may I say that also in the Greek text, that verb has the thought of being middle in its voice. Meaning that it's a thought that each individual has to make. The Lord was making this affirmation, this proclamation for Himself. It wasn't forced upon Him. He was able to, in calmness of mind and in full disposition of spirit, say, Father, into Thy hands I commend my spirit. It really was a statement of tremendous comfort and a statement of remarkable trust. It is that aspect of it that it seems should prompt your thinking and mind for much of the rest of this lesson today. Just as surely as last Sunday was a word of closure, a word of completion, today this is a word of trust. And the immediate question that it begs of all of us will be the very matter on which we'll build much of the rest of this lesson. I'd like to begin that set of thoughts by asking some rather piercing but personal thoughts and questions for each of us. I know well that each of us have experienced conversations with others and we have in fact faced it due to deaths in our families, loved ones that we've known. You and I know well death can be a very unsettling event. It can be somewhat unnerving. And there are even those who have recognized psychological maladies relative to death. Some even call it death anxiety. So much so they don't want to talk about it. They're fearful of it. They will quickly distance themselves from any conversation that broaches that subject. You and I know well that, again, part of that is the mystery in the mind of so many that surrounds death. What happens at death? What happens after it? Isn't that a world distinction between what you see espoused in these words of Jesus? Father, into thy hand I commend my spirit. It may well be those words of commendation bring us to the fact that the sacred and wonderful Word of God has, of course, an anecdote for this death anxiety. And that particular antidote is, of course, that which you see about the middle of that slide and following. May we say that this matter of death need not hold fear for those who in life have trusted in the Lord. It's safe to say that at death one can't trust in the Lord if you haven't trusted in Him in life. And so the question for all of us has to be, are you and I commending to God our spirit on a daily basis? Are we giving our life in full submission to His will? Or are we trying to live our way and claim that it's God's will? Are we trying to do what we want and just hopeful that it's His will? For may we say if it's the latter, that just will not be acceptable. That just will not suffice. In Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, the sacred writer of the ancient era said, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. Think about the words of that statement again with me. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. He wasn't just talking about death. He wasn't just talking about the hours that may lead up to one's demise. The inspired writer Solomon was giving a prescription for a life for which this anecdote is known. Live a life trusting in the Lord and death will need hold no fear for you. For you and I have learned so often, haven't we, that perfect love casteth out fear, 1 John 4, verses 17 and following. 
this matter of trusting in the Lord. It is true that the devil, that wily enemy of yours and mine, 1 Peter 5, 8, is one who would desire you and I to place our trust somewhere, anywhere other than in the Lord. Place it in ourselves, in the government, in our job, anywhere but in the Lord. Because he understands well that that kind of placement of trust is a victory for him. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And lean not in thine own understanding. How did that particular passage then continue in the next verse? Verse number 6. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Your paths, your choices and mine, are they being directed by the Lord? That's a question that, of course, you and I must answer individually. It does remind us, though, doesn't it, of what James said in James 4, beginning in verse 13, in which your life and mine is compared to a vapor that appears for a little while, a little time, and then vanishes away. And then the conclusion was, one may have the desire to go into a city and buy and sell and get gain, but rather the truthful approach should be, if the Lord will, we shall in fact do this or that. Again, James 4, verse 15. If the Lord will, do you and I then live a life in which we could with confidence say, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit? Isn't it certainly a safe observation to make that when you and I observe this world about us and the universe and its expansiveness, if our God can overrule that in its intricacies, in its complexities, and all the marvels that attach to it. Can He not take care of your spirit, your soul, and mine? To ask that question is to answer it, isn't it? We know well if He minutely can take care of every atom of every solid in this whole universe, He can take care of your soul and mine. If we will but submit ourselves to Him, live a life dedicated to His cause, He will keep that spirit safely. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. No wonder the psalmist said in Psalm 37, Commit thy way unto the Lord, and He shall direct thy paths. That word commit is one that then should be a careful matter of consideration for you and me. And may we in fact devote a moment to thinking about its development. To commend, to commit. In Psalm 55, verse 22, there is a passage that comes at the very close of that chapter. It's a passage that in fact should be a strong one that rests on your mind and mine, and one even in times of difficulty and hardship really ought to be one of the first on which you and I should give meditation. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. I'm sure if, like myself, you have leaned on that passage more than once, knowing that even in the tumultuous matters of life, if you and I as righteous will cast our cares, our burdens and difficulties on Him, He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. It's not to say there may not be occasions in which the devil casts many difficult winds and many hard circumstances but the righteous won't be moved. Why? For they're founded on a rock, Matthew 7, 24 and following. You remember on that occasion that the winds came, the floods did as well, and beat upon the house, but it was able to withstand. Why? Because it was founded upon a rock. 
founded on a foundation far more secure and strong than self. It was founded on, of course, the eternal being of God. And Jesus said, In thy hands I commend my spirit. You'll notice on that slide, isn't it true that we even perhaps quickly think about a gentleman named Paul? The New Testament speaks so often about this one. He was a person of great talent and potential and possibility. But he was also a man into whose consideration the trust of himself had been given unto the Lord who died for him. We see a man who was so often maligned and so often beaten and mistreated. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and following. But we see a man who emerged victorious over all of it. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. We noted earlier that word commend had a middle voice concept attached to it. I thought it might be interesting for us to observe that the Greek text seems to suggest as well a thought that this commendation is a matter of totality. In other words, it's a fullness, it's a completeness. Isn't it true, as you can see at the bottom of that slide, that perfectly describes Jesus. He had in the course of those 33 years of His life in the flesh descriptions that follow like this. In John 4, verse 34, My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. That word meat is used there in a figurative fashion describing the objective purpose and mission of life. All that Jesus ever did surrounded the will of God. Two chapters later in John 6, verse 38, Jesus on that occasion said also something very similar, namely the feature and aspect of the nature of His mission, His will, was to do the very will of God. That's the very purpose why He'd come. Did He not say in John chapter 7, verse 29, He always did that which made the Father happy or that which made the Father pleased. Maybe then that leads to this question, do you and I always do that which is His pleasing will? You and I know that at times we fail. But do we continue habitually in that sin? Do we continue to live and wallow in the shame and the vileness that goes with it? Or do we realize the urgency of the moment, repent of the error, and come back to a right standing station? The question rests with you and with me. If it's not the latter, we can't honestly say that we would commend our spirit unto Him, for we're living rebelliously, aren't we? Maybe that idea of rebellion brings us the way that slide ends. And the way it ends again asks each of us, could you and I with honesty at this moment say, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He's got the whole world in his hands. Our little children sing that sometimes and we've already sung songs this morning about how blessed and wonderful and sweet children are and God loves all of them. Well, you and I are his children should be as Christians, we've been born into the family of God, John 3, verses 3 to 5. As such, we've been washed from sin, added to the church, Acts 2, 47. And in all those ways, we then ought to be living pleasingly unto Him. What about you and me? Are we failing in those ways? Are we showing up at services, knowing all well that during the week things are not as they ought to be? You and I can make that right. You and I can come back to a first love. We can set aside those things during the week. 
Satan won't be happy with your attempt, and so he'll make it hard. There's no question about that. And the same, of course, with me. But it can be done. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The matter of complete obedience to his ways and to his will maybe challenges us with a great benefit that comes with it. And in this sense, we come full circle. A few moments ago, we made an observation about how that death is such a troubling thing to some people because of the mystery that lies beyond, because the sensual perception is not there. They've never experienced it before, and hence, it seems so foreign. But yet, you'll notice the calmness with which Jesus was able to approach death. Here He was on a cross in the midst of such pain, in the midst of such anguish and agony, and yet it seems that a calm came over Him, Father. Into Thy hands I commend my spirit. There seems to have been no great hoopla, no great issue surrounding a, a hullabaloo on that moment. It was just a simple passing into death, a transition, and the Lord was well prepared for it, and He asserts you and I can be too a preparation that we'll try to highlight rather easily, but yet powerfully on this, on this slide. Jesus had promised so often speaking about the matter of peace. And it is a subject that, quite frankly, still is a matter so greatly longed for. It seems nearly every speech that any great politician seems to make somewhere in it is an encouragement and a desire for peace. May we say the Bible's filled with the message of how to make it a reality, and therein the human family searches for it the wrong place. Jesus in John 14, 27 said, My peace I leave with you. Two chapters later, as he said, The world will bring you that which is not peace, but he said, I will give you peace. One of the most well known passages in all of John. Isn't it the way the 14th chapter opens? Think with me again about the circumstance in which the Lord made that statement and the matter in which was filling the very minds of His apostles, the ones who heard Him say it. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. These apostles... They had already witnessed some unusual matters. The events of that evening were beginning to unfold in a very strange way. And no doubt that strangeness was going to only increase as the night went on. They'd watch Jesus arrested. They would furthermore observe Him handcuffed and led off to Annas and Caiaphas. They would observe Him buffeted, beaten, slapped, and insulted. They would observe Him ultimately scourged and nailed to a cross. I wonder how often they remembered, let not your heart be troubled. Don't let it bother or agitate you. Why? Because in my Father's house are many mansions. There are many rooms in that glorious abode. Rooms that you and I no doubt look forward to occupying. But question, into thy hands I commend my, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Are we so conducting ourselves as the Lord did that even in the hours approaching death we could with calmness recognize that preparations have been made and all is ready? That tranquility of life is no accident. And it doesn't come by happenstance, does it? 
It comes with dedicated, devoted, determined service to the one who's promised that peace and to the one who will make it a reality. No wonder the Lord could with such ease, having said it is finished and now into thy hands I commend my spirit. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. It might be wise as we give thought near the close of the lesson to think about this. After the Lord expired, after this statement, the text says He gave up the ghost. He died. Those waning moments of confidence, those waning statements of assurance had now given way to His death and now there was just a lifeless corpse on the cross. You notice though that that wasn't the final statements because some others made some comments that seemed so amazing. I thought we might give passing thought to these because it was such a significant event. You might remember with me this was the Passover season. So those Jewish priests were in the process of slaying their animals and making the appropriate placement of those animals. It's also rather interesting that the 3 p.m. hour, that mid-afternoon hour was the very time when they ought to have been in the process of being in the tabernacle, the temple I should say, and thus they would have been in the very presence of that veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And at that very moment, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, our Lord passed away. What would it have been like to have been one of the priests then in that holy place and to watch that gigantic temple rent from top to bottom? It's still amazing to consider it was not rent bottom to top. Matthew's very clear in Matthew 27, 51. It was rent from the top downward. And thus it wasn't rent by human beings. It was rent by God, wasn't it? as that veil separating the holy from the most holy place was rent, you'll notice that there were some other things that happened. The rocks were rent. An earthquake took place, shaking up the earth, reminding one and all that this was a propitious event, and the Son of God has now passed away. As He died in the flesh, that veil being rent, He opened for all of us entrance into the most holy place, heaven. Perhaps one final thing. What about those monumental words of that centurion? You remember there was a centurion there and the gospel writers have chosen to record for us what the centurion said. And in Mark 15, 39, he said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Even the centurion realized this was just no ordinary man that just died. Too many evidences and too many events signified the fact that He was more than that truly. The Son of God this was. What now might we say? Seven words we've considered, the last one being today this word of trust. The fact that Jesus was the Son of God is evidenced by the statement of that centurion, the rending of the veil, the other features surrounding even His resurrection. Now let's end the lesson that very way. It's one thing to discuss the events on the cross and His death and His passing. May we never forget, though, that something marvelous happened that Lord's Day morning. He rose. He arose. The shackles of death were not able to hold Him. By the power of God up from the grave, He arose, Romans 1 verse 4. And thus instills within you and me the hope 
the grand hope that you and I too should be resurrected and we can stand before God and also with confidence say, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 and following, the inspired writer Paul, as he made reference to that event, commented like this, He, speaking of Christ, was the first fruits of them that slept. That is to say, He died, but He arose, but He was the first. And in order, all we as Christians, of course, shall, shall follow. The dead in Christ shall rise first. That's the promise of 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Death isn't the end. And there is thus no reason for a child of God to be morbidly fearful of it. Because you and I have been filled with a peace and tranquility that allows a passage through death to a far better existence than this. For me to depart and be with Christ is far better, Paul wrote in Philippians 1. And could he not also in that same chapter comment that he was in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. We are not by any means asserting that there should be a longing desire to always bring about death. But may we say that for the one who is a child of God, what confidence there can be, what assurance there can be, what a sense of commendation and ease there can be, because perfect love has cast out fear. As you'll notice at the bottom of that slide, the questions that seem fair then to use to close this lesson as well as the whole series might be this. It is one thing entirely to study about the crucifixion and to learn these words that Jesus spoke. The issue is what do they mean to me and what do they mean to you? Have you and I appropriated and applied them to our lives so that we have in fact benefited and are drawn near to the Lord by virtue of them? Or is the crucifixion just one other moment in history, no better or no more significant than so many others? If it's the latter, there's a problem. For that event is one that never occurred before, nor shall it ever be repeated. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews 9 will refer to that event in such a monumental fashion in the closing paragraph to that chapter. In Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28, the writer said, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And to them that look to Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. A one-time event. And the oneness, the uniqueness of that event, again, He says He'll appear the second time. He's coming back in the clouds on some occasion. Revelation 1, verses 5 to 7. And when He does, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words, to quote 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 18. Comfort. Are you comforted today? As a Christian, you should be. You can be. But if all isn't well with your soul, you likely aren't very comforted, and you have no reason to be, because there's turmoil. In your spirit at this moment, things are not well and there is in fact a rubbing together and great friction between what the Scriptures have taught and what your current stature and standing in life is. The wicked, the text says, are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. Whose waters cast up mire and dirt, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. To quote Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21. Today... 
Is your spirit soothed in peace? If it is, may you continue to live faithfully by the Word of God until death, and the crown of life will be yours, the promise of Revelation 2.10. But if, if all isn't well today, if you are not able with confidence to say, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, then why not make it so you can say that today? If you are a wayward child of God, one who has once known the sweetness of that feeling, you knew what it was like in confidence to dwell that way. But over the course of weeks or perhaps months, decisions have brought you to a station in life where you're but a shell of what you once were. You feel hollow because your life is not as it ought to be. Things are not in a way where you can say with confidence, I commend my spirit unto the Lord. Why not come back today? If those sins have been of a public character, confess them before others. Others won't look down on you. They'll celebrate and be happy, in fact, to pray with you so that you can be reinstated to a place by the Master's side. If, on the other hand, you've never become a child of God, to this point in life you have ignored all the cross has ever stood for. You know the history of it, but you've never applied it to yourself. May I say to you that all the knowledge in the world apart from appropriating those blessings, will not mean a thing at all on the day of judgment to you. Why not come to His side today? Believe Jesus with all of your heart to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. Honestly, earnestly, submissively, and quickly. And we'd be happy to assist you in that way today. And if we could do so, Jonathan has chosen this hymn of encouragement. This is a convenient time, an opportune one, and if right now the door of your heart is being knocked on time and again by the Master, don't let the devil keep it closed. Please don't let the devil keep that door closed, but rather why not open it and invite the Master in, Revelation 3, 20 and 21. If we could be of help to you, why not come even now while together we stand and while we sing?